Let's turn to the book of John, chapter 4. You remember when Jesus' disciples came to him and they had been exposed to Jesus praying before and they said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. They, they desired to learn how to pray like Jesus did. And so Jesus gives them this template of what we would normally call the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, pray in this manner. And so he gives them this this guideline, this template, if you will, on how to pray, what, what would be contained in your prayers. It's a great teaching just to go through that prayer and learn what he was trying to show them in that. But tonight we're going to be looking at this story and we're going to see that it, it really focuses in on what we would call evangelism. And so for us, this chapter, chapter 4, gives us a template on what evangelism looks like. We get to see evangelism from the master himself uh, as he relates to this Samaritan woman. And we can learn from that. We can learn from both sides. We can learn where she was in relation to uh, her walk with the Lord or lack thereof. And we can see how Jesus actually presents things in a way that we can learn from that as well uh, to apply that in our own lives. So John chapter 4, starting with verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So do you have a, a person or persons that you find it difficult to get along with? Does, does anybody have anybody like that in their life? It's just kind of a struggle, you know. There's the type of person that maybe just grinds on you a little bit. It's just kind of hard to, to interact with them. And even, even the thought of interacting with them can bring up anxiety and stress and uh, maybe even anger at times. It's just because of this, uh, this person, just the way that they are. They just flat out annoy you. Do, do you have anybody like that in your life? There's just some people that you just... Ah, oh, it's, it's hard. It's, it's laborious to try, to try to get along with them. There might be this deep embedded history with them that even keeps you from sharing some of the most important things in your life with them, like your relationship with the Lord. It's like, okay, I don't even like them. You want me to share Jesus with them as well? Yeah, that's what Christ would have us do. And we're going to see in this story tonight about this woman being a Samaritan, and the issues that were there between the Jews and the Samaritans. So we know, we've talked about this before, where there's two types of people, what those that are saved and those that are not saved. Only two people types are in the world. And in our context tonight, uh, in this text, we can look at this as those that should evangelize, those that are saved, and those that need to be evangelized those that aren't saved, right? And we, we, you know, we typically don't have any problem at all sharing just everyday news with people. Uh, you know, hey, I found this great restaurant. You ought to check it out. Or uh, I saw a great movie this weekend. You, sh you should check it out. Watch it, you know. Uh, I got this great deal at Best Buy or somewhere. You know, you ought to look at the flyer and, and check this out. It's stuff that we would share with other people. It's news that we would give them because we think it might be beneficial to them, right? 
Well, when it comes to the subject of evangelism, the same rules apply there. Something that we're excited about, something that we have heard about, something that we can share with someone else. So all this other news, yeah, it's informative, and it might be good news for them if they can get a deal, you know, at, at Best Buy or whatever. Uh, but the good news, the best good news, is something that we should be willing to share on a regular basis. So evangelism, what is it? So I looked up the dictionary definition, and it says, zealous advocacy of a cause. I don't know about you, when you hear that, me, I read it, and I was like, hmm, sounds complicated. Zealous advocacy of a cause. I had to practice even saying advocacy because it's not a word I use regularly. Uh, then it says underneath that, the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. Now that gets closer. We understand that. That makes sense. But I tend to go with a very simple definition when I look at these things. So people who know Jesus telling other people about Jesus. Evangelism. If you know Jesus, you want to tell somebody else about Jesus, that's evangelism. So evangelism is simply taking that which we have already learned and experienced in our relationship with Jesus Christ and sharing it with someone else. The good news that we experienced. So in our text tonight, Jesus gives us a template for evangelism. Very practical steps that we can take to share with others about the gospel of Jesus. Verse 1 said, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So last week we looked at this. We looked at the fact that these guys from John the Baptist camp, they come running to John the Baptist because they had just experienced a scene where Jesus' disciples were baptizing people. And a lot of people were going there. So they come back to John the Baptist and say, hey, we saw this. This is going on. We need to make you aware. This Jesus guy is baptizing and everybody's going to him. So they were trying to start this conflict, if you will. And so we see that John the Baptist then really straightened them out on the way things were, that he was... Uh, fulfilling his calling by doing what he was doing. And now that Jesus was on the scene, he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And we, we looked at that. that this is just great words for us as well. As we grow in our walk with the Lord, we should decrease and he should increase. Now we don't know how long Jesus and his disciples stayed in this area, but now they're moving north. So you come out of Jerusalem Anytime you just get out of Jerusalem, you're in Judea. And now they're going north back towards Galilee. That's pretty much home base for Jesus' ministry over the three years that he was here on the earth. He spent the majority of his time there. The text says in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now the text doesn't say he just happened to travel through Samaria or Samaria was just on his way so he spent a little time there. It says that he needed to go through Samaria and he could have traveled up the coast you know on the west side bypass Samaria come in from the north or he could have crossed the Jordan River and came in from the east to bypass Samaria but 
he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Well, we're going to see in this text that he had a divine appointment waiting for him there. He needed to go there. He had ministry to do there with this unlikely group of people called the Samaritans. And through this chance encounter, he impacts an entire village. We'll see that next week. We know that Jesus only says and does exactly what the Father instructs him to do. So he is directed to go through Samaria, to this well, to meet with this woman. So number one point, evangelism is directed by God. Evangelism is directed by God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The key part of that is that last part which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a plan for us. He's got an overall plan for our lives but he also has a day-to-day plan, a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour plan that he's working in, working through us. God has a divine appointment for us each day. Whether or not we're watching for it is a whole other thing altogether, but he has things that he wants us to do. He has people's lives that he wants us to impact. If we'll just check in with him early in the morning and say, Lord, you've got something for me today. Give me spiritual eyes. Give me an open heart and an open mind to be able to see what it is that you want me to do for you, for your kingdom this day. I guarantee you, put this to the test. If you pray, Lord, bring a divine appointment into my life. Bring me somebody today that I can have opportunity to minister to. He will answer that prayer in one way or another. Now, you may not even leave the house. It could, it could be your spouse. It could be one of your kids. Any number of people, but Lord, give me an opportunity to minister to somebody today. So verse 5 says, He came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. We see that back in Genesis chapter 48. And it says, Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we're going to see that the connection between this group of people called the Samaritans and this well, Jacob's well, is very strong. Strong connection. It's like a landmark for them. You know, it would be like maybe here in Bertha, the big silo over here with somebody's picture on it. (laughs) It's a landmark in the community. You can see it from a long ways off. You can kind of gauge where you are in town by knowing that that's there. So Jacob's well was a place not only that was a landmark for them, but it supplied them something very essential, water, right? So this well is a connection to their roots. It's it's part of their heritage. And this well is dug on a plot of ground owned by Jacob originally that he gave to Joseph. The well is still there to this day if you go to, to to go to Israel on a trip. Although most trips to Israel don't include a visit to Jacob's well. doesn't happen. I'll explain that in a few verses. But it says it was about the sixth hour. Now this time 
reference is referring to one of two times in the day. We talked about this early on in our study of John. It's either referring to Roman time during that day and age or it's referring to Jewish time. There were basically two time clocks that were going on. Had to be confusing, I'm sure. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write their gospels based on Roman time. If you look at the time when they mention it, time of day, it's based on Roman time. But in the book of John, he uses the Jewish time clock. Now, the Roman time clock is the same as ours. It goes from midnight to noon, noon to midnight. That'd be very familiar to us. But the Jewish time clock went from 6 a.m. in the morning to 6 p.m. in the evening, and 6 p.m. in the evening to 6 a.m. in the morning. So when it says it's about the sixth hour, it can really only be two times, right? It could either be noon or midnight, right? So this is not happening in the middle of the night, obviously, so it's, it's in the middle of the day. So, so we see then that in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now women in that area would typically draw water in the morning or the evening. So they'd have water for the whole day, or they'd have water for the evening, whether it be for their family or for their livestock or whatever it was. I know some of you are probably going, well, why are the women going to draw the water? Where are, are the men? They're off doing very important things, I'm sure, you know, as men do. So women draw the water and the men go do important stuff. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> some of you aren't buying that, are you? Well, <laughs> I don't know why they did that, but they did. So the women go in the morning or the evening to draw water. But this woman, we're going to see, comes to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, when, when no one else would be there. This woman is actually hoping there won't be anybody else there. So Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He, he spoke to this woman. He, he struck up a conversation with her. Also, we're going to see in these verses that we, we see the humanity of Jesus, don't we? That he was tired and he was thirsty. I, I like seeing that because so many times as we go through the Gospels, we look at the life of Jesus and we seem as God's Son, we seem as the Lord, we seem as God Himself, but we don't seem as a man a lot of times. So when we see this, he was tired and he was thirsty. So he sat down at this well and he strikes up this conversation, this earthly conversation with this woman. So point number two, we have evangelism is directed by God, and now we have evangelism is an investment. Evangelism is an investment, an investment in others. We'll see that. So when we have an opportunity or a divine appointment that God sets up for us, as we've already talked about, we can find some common ground with that individual, initially just in natural surroundings and activities, you know, where are you from, uh, how long have you lived here, what type of work do you do, where do you go to school, where do you live here in town, uh, any number of things. What do you think about this weather, you know, just basic everyday conversation. Just, you might even call them icebreakers, I guess, that term is used, to just get a conversation started. So Jesus strikes up this conversation with this woman, and verse 8 says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now I think it was something like this. 
The disciples were probably whining about being hungry because they whined a lot. They were like us, right? And so Jesus knew he had this divine appointment. He needed to go through Samaria. He knew that this was going to take place. And I think at least in this case, he wanted to have the one-on-one quality time with this woman without disciple interference. Now, why would he do that? Well, we're going to see that the Jews carried a lot of baggage in their relations with the Samaritans. Some some not good stuff going on here, both ways. And so it was going to be very difficult for Jesus' disciples to understand why, number one, that he would even be talking to this woman, but also the fact that she was a Samaritan woman. And so maybe he just felt like in order to have this focused time with her, I need to shoot, shove these guys towards town, send them to the mini-mart, you know, there in Samaria to get some food, whatever it is. So verse 9 says, The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman's asking him, How is this that you're, you're a Jew? Why are you asking for a drink from me? And then it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Apostle John would have added that for clarification. I wonder why. Why do they have no dealings with Samaritans? Well, from history we would see, and from Scripture, uh, Old Testament, we would see that the Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were part Jew and part Gentile. Part Assyrian, actually. The Assyrians came down in about 727 B.C. and uh, carried uh, northern uh, Israel off into captivity. But rather than take all of the Jews, all of the people from that area back to Assyria, they left some there since they conquered that territory. They were going to leave some of their own people there to make sure to police it, oversee it, to watch the investment they had in taking over that land and they left some of the Jews there probably to use as slaves or whatever they wanted them for. But over time we'll see that some of the Assyrians intermarried with some of the Jews in that area. So it created this hybrid group called the Samaritans, this group of just half Jews if you will. The true Jews saw them as they were selling out they sold out and became, uh, you know, part Assyrian. And it's like, really, did they have much choice? Probably not. But they were looked down upon by the true Jews of the day. So we'll even see that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The Jews of that day, especially the religious leaders promoting it, they didn't even want you traveling through Samaria. Don't have anything to do with them. They're lower class Jews, if you will. So the Jews in Jesus' day just didn't even interact with the Samaritans unless it was absolutely necessary. They avoided as much as possible. They avoided traveling through that area as much as possible. Now, in Jesus' day, Jacob's well, as we see, is in this area called Samaria. Today, Jacob's well is in what we would know as Palestinian territory. It's in the area known as the West Bank. Jews avoid this area today as well. 
If you take a trip to Israel today that's hosted by Jewish tour guides, your plans are not going to include Jacob's well. They're just not. I know when we went back in 2007, in order to go to Bethlehem, which was in Palestinian territory in the West Bank area, we would have had to gotten off of our Jewish tour guide bus, paid some money to get on a Palestinian tour bus to actually go to Bethlehem. Sounds crazy, but the Jewish tour guides are not going to go through there. They're not going to take you there. So we see this, this thing going on with Jews and Samaritans way back in Jesus' day. And to a certain degree, it's still going on today between Jews and Palestinians. Something we could kind of relate to in modern day. Also in Jesus' day, a rabbi would refrain from talking to women in public. Even their own wives at times. As strange as that sounds, that was true. So this woman is surprised that Jesus even talked to her. I'm sure she saw that he was thirsty and I don't think her question here is, is being condescending. I think she's just curious. Well, this is kind of odd. I came to the well today and there's a Jew sitting at the well, which is odd to start with. And now this Jew is actually going to speak to me, which is odd. And he's asking me for a drink. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is switching this conversation now from the earthly realm into a spiritual realm. We're going to see point three, evangelism is directed by God. Evangelism is an investment. And evangelism is focused on Jesus. Jesus brings the focus back to himself in this verse. If you knew the gift of God, which was Jesus, and who it is that says to you, Jesus, give me a drink, you would have asked him, Jesus, and he would have given you living water. All of it's directed to himself. So we can talk about the weather, we can talk about politics, we can even talk about the Broncos. I'm sure a lot of talk about that going on this weekend. But biblical evangelism, true biblical evangelism, isn't just that if the name of Jesus never comes up. We can use the icebreakers. We can use the normal everyday conversation. But at some point in time, the focus needs to be switched to Jesus. Evangelism is all about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did. What do you think about Jesus? It says the gift of God, who it is it says to you. She asked him, he would have given. In all of these, Jesus is referencing himself. So the woman says to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, we saw in verse 9 that the woman refers to Jesus as a Jew. Jews have no uh, relations with uh, Samaritans. Here, she refers to him as what? Sir, something changed. Maybe her interest is piqued. She's addressing him in a different way. Maybe it's his demeanor. Maybe it's his uh, 
character that's coming across just in the way that he is relating to her. We don't know for sure. But she says, the water's deep. How, how are you going to draw water out of it if I don't draw it for you? You don't have anything to draw it with. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Jacob dug this well and it's passed on through generations and it's life-giving to the Samaritans because of the water that's there. But the woman is thinking in the material or the earthly things. Jesus has switched gears now as we can see and he's talking about spiritual things. Our father Jacob, she says, gave us this well. She's connecting her lineage. And it's okay to do that. It's a connection. It's not something you should worship. You almost see that her connection with Jacob's well, this is something that's been, boy, they hold this in high regard. I don't even know if we want a Jew drinking out of our well, Jacob's well here. We have in Calvary Chapel a great connection with, with Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, Pastor Chuck, as we know, has gone home to be with the Lord, but we don't worship Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck would have never wanted that. He would have discouraged that at all costs. So the attention doesn't need to be on this thing or this person. The attention needs to be focused on Jesus himself. Even though Jacob was an important figure in their history, but here and now, uh, even though she doesn't realize it, she's in the very presence of God himself. So Jesus answered and said to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So Jesus is giving this uh, answer to her about this water that he can supply her that actually uh, springs up into everlasting life. Well, we know what that is, eternal life. It's relationship with Jesus. It's life giving to us. Uh, we don't have it unless we have a relationship with Christ. Uh, we used a little illustration the other night in discipleship. We were talking about it before the service. Of we had a pitcher of water and we had this glass. <laughs> I'm going to get to it, Shan. <laughs> and we had this bowl. And what I was trying to get across to people is the water represents the Holy Spirit. The pitcher is God, and we're the glass. So God pours into us his Holy Spirit, filling us up. Springing up to eternal life, if you will. And then my whole picture with this graphic illustration was for the water to overflow out of the glass, us, into this bowl, which represents others. So God pouring out his Holy Spirit in us and out of us, overflowing into the lives of other people. The only thing that I didn't realize was that there was a young man in our study that night <laughs> that at some time during the, the teaching that night, I thought maybe he just got up to get a cup of coffee. I kind of had the pitcher stuck to the back of the table in there. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, okay, it's just out of the way. Out of sight, out of mind, Right. No, no, not so. Because somewhere along the line, I had carefully measured downstairs before class two glasses of water so that I would know for certain when I poured it into the glass, it would overflow. Because, I mean, that's the whole point. 
and I'm pouring, and I'm running out of water. <laughs> well, Cole was grinning from ear to ear over there, and I didn't know why. I, I thought, am I doing something stupid here? You know, is my fly down? Well, I mean, what's going on? I don't, I don't know what's going on here. So Cole had grabbed him a drink of water uh, sometime during the study. There was just enough for it to, you know, kind of trickle out into the... I think everybody got the picture, but uh, it wasn't as impactful as it could have been. But he enjoyed it. I think that's great anyway. But uh, the woman's saying, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Who, Jesus is basically saying, whoever continues to drink of this material water, this earthly water that you come and draw from the well each and every day, It will never quench your thirst completely. You can come back and come back and come back and come back and it's never going to completely quench your thirst. The thirst that he's talking about that springs up or wells up into eternal life says well, whoever takes one drink of the water that I give him will never thirst again. She's still thinking in the earthly. Jesus is speaking in the spiritual. The things of this world just never completely satisfy us, do they? We can look at that in the life of Solomon in the Old Testament. And all the riches and all the things that Solomon had never satisfied. Same is true with us. We can go out and buy a brand new car and as soon as we drive it off the lot, it's used at that point, right? So we drive it six months, we drive it a year. Yeah, the new is kind of worn off. We start seeing the new models coming out, and boy, those are attractive. We're just, we're just never satisfied. TVs. How big does a TV have to be to be big enough? I, you know, I think, well, Chris and I had this conversation when we bought our last TV because, you know, I wanted like a 60-inch. It's a man thing, okay? <laughs> I wanted a big TV, and she goes, but our living room is so small. I mean, what? We can't have a TV that big in our living room. And I said, "Hun, the window's that big. Uh, you know, I mean, we have a window. <laughs> she didn't get my logic at all, you know. Those decorators, what can you say? The things of the world, they just never satisfy us. They're never enough. But Jesus is trying to get across to this woman, what I have for you will satisfy you. So we all have tried to satisfy ourselves with earthly things. You've tried it. I've tried it. We don't get no satisfaction. Though I tried, and I tried, and I tried, I can't get no satisfaction. Mick was right, I think, when he sang that, and we can't get no satisfaction without Jesus Christ. This woman, we know, of course, she gets thirsty. The livestock gets thirsty. Her husband, wherever he is, he gets thirsty. Well, in this case, she doesn't have a husband. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, this woman is definitely interested in this water that Jesus is talking about because, number one, it could save her a lot of time. It could save her a lot of work. What, there's water that I can drink of and never be thirsty again? Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She doesn't want to go have, have to go through her daily routine if there's this other water that she can get. Now Jesus changes gears again and he points out that this, was, this woman hasn't kept the law. 
he lovingly shows her or gives her the truth. Remember way back in chapter 1, we saw this about Jesus, that he is full of grace and truth. So when we're evangelizing, when we're sharing with someone else, those are two things that we have to show. We have to show grace and we have to show truth. We can't sacrifice one for the other. If we give them all truth, it's going to be a turnoff. If we give them all grace, there's not going to be enough meat there to know what's going on. We have to give them grace and truth, balanced in our evangelism approach. Number four, evangelism reveals grace and truth. Jesus said to her, after she asked her question, he says to her, go call your husband and come here. Well, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. This should bring up something to us. She's living with a guy that's not her husband. Maybe the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Her sin has found her out. She hasn't kept the law. She's broken God's law. She's broken God's commandments. But notice something. Jesus doesn't condemn her. There's nothing in the text that really indicates Jesus with a condemning attitude towards her at all. He points out the truth, but he isn't condemning in that. In John 3.17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's not condemning her. He's trying to lead her to himself. He's trying to save her. You know, we learned in John 1.14, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He gives her the truth, but he shows her much grace by not coming towards her with a condemning attitude. It's a great example for us because we can be very judgmental at times, can't we? We can look at someone and make a, uh, a judgment call right from the start by the way they look, by what they do, where they live, what they drive, any number of earthly things, we make this judgment call towards them. Jesus doesn't do that. He's already proven that because of where he is and who he's talking to. Jews, they didn't relate to Samaritans, did they? But where is he? downtown Samaria. He's at Jacob's Well, a center of attraction for the Samaritan people. And he's talking with this Samaritan woman. He's not being judgmental. He has a divine appointment set up by God to be there. Number five, evangelism reveals sin. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. We can't do this Christian thing on our own. We need the Lord's help. God's Word, as we go through it, as we study it, as we comprehend it through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, God's Word reveals sin to us. Evangelism should bring people face to face with God's Word. Let God's Word point out the sin in their life. We don't have to have the finger of accusation going, pointing at them. Let God's word do its work because it reveals sin. That's what the law does, the Ten Commandments. God gave us his righteous requirement. So if we're going to live under the law, we have to fulfill it, all of it. Of course, we can't do that. We know that. 
James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So even if we kept nine commandments and we fell short in one, not good enough. Doesn't meet God's righteous requirement. We would have to fulfill to perfection all of those laws, and there's only one person that's ever done that, Jesus himself. So if we stumble in one point, we're guilty of all, and that is the point. We can't, we can't keep the law. Romans 3, 19 through 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. It basically shuts us up, doesn't it? That the mouth may be stopped. You guys have probably noticed that's a very difficult thing to do with me, getting my mouth to stop. But Romans chapter 3 gives that to us, and in evangelism we can use that because we can lovingly, with a lot of grace, share the truth that God gave his law and no one can live up to that righteous requirement. She said, I have no husband. Notice that that was the shortest statement she made during the entire conversation. Why? She was under conviction. Her mouth was stopped, as the verse says. God's law reveals our sin, and we are convicted, or we should be convicted. Number six, evangelism convicts the sinner. As we point out God's righteous requirement, as we take him to God's word, the Holy Spirit working, walking along beside, wooing them, points out things that maybe they never saw before. Maybe they never paid attention to. You have to really wonder what would be going on through this woman's mind when Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the, the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband. That had to be shocking. Who is this guy that he would even know that? What, what? This is just crazy. How would he have that kind of insight? But evangelism convicts the sinner. She's going through a time now where she's experiencing some conviction. And we're going to see that conversion only comes after conviction. Conviction has to happen first. We have to realize the state that we're in before we realize that conversion is even necessary, that we're in need of a Savior. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So now we've gone from Jew, as what she called Jesus originally, to sir, and now to prophet. Well, based on what he just said to her, we could see that how this would be her response. And he must be a prophet, because how, how would he know this? So her esteem for him is growing. She's gaining more and more respect for him. Uh, but then there's this change in subject matter. She wants to get the attention off herself. She is convicted. This is a classic tactic that we're going to see with someone as we're sharing with them when they're convicted. She kind of goes into a defense mode here. You're getting too close here. I've got to change the conversation. I don't want to deal with my sin. You're pointing at me, and I'm going to point at you. Our human nature, our fleshly nature does this. We kind of lash out. We have that tendency to do that. 
this Jewish version of the uh, Hatfield and McCoy battle between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's been going on for a long time. Because the Samaritans were hybrids, half-Jews, they weren't allowed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So at a certain point in time, they built their own. On Mount Gerizim, they built their own temple. It was destroyed some years before this time takes place, but she's basically saying, well, our fathers tell us to worship on this mountain. You say worship here. Well, she, she's just kind of taking a sidestep in the conversation, trying to throw something back out at him. She says, our fathers. Jesus says, my father. She says, we were raised to worship on this mountain in this way. But you say the Jews are to worship in Jerusalem in their way. You're trying to force what you believe on me. What about this? What about that? Isn't God's word full of contradictions? Has anybody ever said that to you? (laughs) If they do, you know what the best answer is for that? Show me. (laughs) Show me where the contradiction is. Because most of the time, they don't even know God's word. They just heard that from someone else. And they say, show me the contradictions. You know, like, did Adam have a belly button? You know, that you've all heard that one. How did Cain get a wife? How do all the animals fit on the ark? You know, just those strange things like that. Did Adam have one less rib than all other men because he gave a rib, you know, to make a woman. It's just sidestepping questions that are going nowhere. But Jesus says, since you brought it up, let's talk about worship. Worship's not about where you are physically. It's about where you are spiritually. It's not where you are, but where your heart is. For true worshipers, it can happen anywhere. I know the church that I grew up in never referred to the place where we met for services as the church. It was always referred to as the building because it, it sounds legalistic, but in some ways that they are right in that we know the church is God's people. The building is not the church. But it's the type of argument that, that she's trying to get going on right here with, with Jesus, with worship and where you worship. So true worshipers can worship the Lord anywhere and at any time. It doesn't take an approved place. True worship happens when we respond to who God is and to his love. Travis leads worship. He leads worship in all kinds of places. He led worship when we were down in Costa Rica together in some very odd places. (laughs) But it was still worship because it was worship to God. It wasn't about geographical location. Then we see Jesus says to worship in spirit and in truth. It's God's truth and God is spirit. He says so in that verse. God is spirit. Worshiping God for all he is, all that he's done, all that he's doing, all that he promises to do. But most of all, just for who he is, God. But notice the phrase, the Father is seeking such to worship him. Whenever you or I feel far from God... Just start to worship him. He promises you will find him. Wherever you are, wherever, whatever you're going through, whatever you're doing. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, If you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So whatever we're going through in our lives, if we seek God, if we worship him, and worship is not just singing praise and worship songs. It can be that. That's a great tool that we have to express ourselves to God going to him in prayer, just crying out to him. He knows what's going on in our heart anyway. So whenever we feel far from God, we can just worship him. 
He promises we will find Him. We can express our love to God. We love Him because He first loved us. Number seven, evangelism leads people to Jesus. Let's recap real quick. Evangelism is directed by God. God's the one who is guiding us to these divine appointments. Evangelism is an investment as we invest in the lives of others. Evangelism is focused on Jesus. Evangelism reveals grace and truth. Evangelism reveals sin. Evangelism convicts the sinner. Evangelism leads people to Jesus. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So in her upbringing, in the way that she was raised, she knew of the Messiah. And she said, when he comes, the Christ, he will tell us all things. He will teach us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You're right, Messiah is coming. He's here. I am he. Jesus finally introduces himself to her. He reveals to her who he is. In evangelism, we're supposed to lead people to Jesus. We're supposed to reveal Jesus to them. He uses us to introduce himself to others in everyday life. It's the revelation of recognizing who Jesus is and what he has done for you and me and sharing that with others. Remember verse 14 in our text, Jesus promises water that will spring up to eternal life. 1 John 5.11 says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's, it's very simple in presentation form when you look at it in that way. They must have a relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. He wants to use us to lead them into a relationship with himself. So next week we're going to see what this woman does with this new information that she has and how she herself leads people to Jesus.